to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured Episode 184. In this episode, we're taking a look at gig work across the pond with the Independent Workers Union of Great Britain. And we get an update from the front lines of the UAW strike. But first, the news. For several years, it looked like Uber was on an unstoppable tear, plowing into city after city around the world and mowing down regulations left and right. But California finally just put a big speed bump in Uber's joyride. California's AB5 bill passed the legislature and is now headed to the governor's desk for a widely anticipated signature. The law takes direct aim at the gig economy's chief deregulatory weapon, the exploitation of rules that allow them to classify workers as non-employees or independent contractors. AB5 basically tightens the standard for determining independent contractor status based on whether a worker is A. not directly controlled by the company, B. does work in the same trade or field independent of that company, and C. is independently established as someone doing business separately in the same sector. If workers don't meet these criteria, they would be considered employees of the company, which means that they would be entitled to the minimum wage, workers' compensation, and other benefits and protections under California's labor laws. Most notably, it might open the path to unionization and collective bargaining. The law would affect many sectors across the economy, particularly gig work and personal services done on a project basis, like dog walkers, and it would affect numerous platform-based jobs, such as Postmates. But the biggest opponents of the law were Uber and Lyft, since tens of thousands of rideshare drivers across the state could see their jobs totally overhauled under AB5. While Uber and Lyft have been targeted in many legal challenges and organizing campaigns, AB5 may be a real turning point for the whole industry across the country. Not surprisingly, Uber and Lyft appear to be scheming to launch a ballot measure to get voters to reverse the law. At this point, however, the momentum of the grassroots movement to rein in the gig economy may be unstoppable. I spoke to Brian Dolber, an organizer with Rideshare Drivers United, about what AB5 might do for Uber and Lyft drivers in California and nationwide. So uh, Social Security taxes we expect to be paid into, Medicare uh, taxes we expect to be paid into, uh, and um, drivers are, are now going to be entitled to um, workers' compensation. You know, if there's injuries on the job, which obviously driving for Uber uh, or Lyft, uh, leaves you pretty vulnerable to getting to accidents and being injured on the job. We expect that you know people should uh, be able to be compensated at you know the rate that you know they would typically be making um, for that time at their job. What we know uh, already is that Uber and Lyft are um, planning a referendum strategy, and that was reported um, a number of weeks ago, um, where. Um, uh, I believe they expect to spend about $90 million uh, attempting to uh, convince voters that um, an alternative arrangement is necessary for, uh, for rideshare drivers. You know, and, and I'm sure that they will be using uh, their, uh, their legal muscle, their uh, lobbying muscle, um, and uh, you know, any, any effort that they can to um, you know, either uh, change the law That was Brian Dolber of Rideshare Drivers United. 
Kickstarter, the website used by all sorts of creative types for fundraising for projects ranging from podcasts to documentary films to comic books to I don't even know what, is usually considered a progressive corporation. It's even registered as a public benefit corporation, a designation that, well, we would take hours to get into and I don't have time for right now. But plenty of supposedly progressive companies and even nonprofits still have issues with how they treat their workforce, and Kickstarter employees have been in an organizing drive for months. They went public last March. Kickstarter refused to voluntarily recognize the union, saying, according to Slate, quote, that it would be costly, make the company less agile, and would distract employees from other work at the company, end quote. The company's CEO said he would respect employees' decision if they voted to have the union via secret ballot, a nice concession considering that's what the law requires. Now, though, the Office and Professional Employees International Union Local 153, which is the union working with the Kickstarter employees, has filed charges with the NLRB alleging that Kickstarter has fired two employees for union activity. Clarissa Redwine and Taylor Moore were fired within days of each other, and both of them had regularly signed emails from the union's organizing committee. Workers at Kickstarter told reporters that Redwine had been under increased scrutiny from management and was terminated instead of being put on the usual performance improvement plan. Redwine was asked to sign a non-disparagement clause when she left and told Slate that she feels, quote, strongly that any agreement that treats severance as repayment for silence is an unethical one, end quote. Moore had completed the performance improvement plan but was also fired, and the union claims the firings are unexpected and retaliatory. Kickstarter creators, meanwhile, including Current Affairs magazine's Nathan Robinson, an artist and friend of this show, Molly Crabapple, have signed petitions calling on Kickstarter to recognize the union. Kickstarter claims that the firings are not retaliatory and shared as evidence that other union supporters have received raises and promotions, but that, quote, we can't suspend the routine operations of the company while a staff considers whether a union is right for them, end quote. The fired workers are asking for reinstatement and back pay. Next steps include the union filing an affidavit, describing the charges, and then Kickstarter will have to reply. We'll keep you updated, and if you are a Kickstarter worker or a creator who's used the company's services, as indeed have I, you can reach us at belabored.descentmagazine.org. This week, nearly 50,000 General Motors workers went on strike. The workers launched the work stoppage, GM's first since 2007, following an impasse in contract talks between GM and United Auto Workers on behalf of workers at 33 manufacturing plants and 22 parts distribution warehouses across the country. Most are auto workers, but there are also 3,000 union-represented janitors with Aramark, a facilities and concessions contractor. They're demanding an end to the so-called two-tier system, in which more recently hired temporary workers have been placed in a lower wage tier than the permanent co-workers they work alongside. They're pushing for an opportunity for attempts to finally get permanent positions, and they're also protesting the closure of two major plants in Lordstown, Ohio, and Warren, Michigan. Overall, workers are just angry that GM is forcing austerity on them, while the company is expanding overseas and turning massive profits. Big Auto managed to bounce back since the recession with the help of massive concessions from the UAW, so workers now want to get their fair share. But as they line up on the picket line, they might wonder also what the union's leadership is up to, as several top UAW officials are embroiled in a federal corruption investigation. I caught up with Sean Crawford, a worker in GM's Flint truck assembly plant, as he was making a picket sign on Tuesday, getting ready to stay out for as long as it takes for him and his co-workers to get a fair contract. But beyond this round of contract talks, he's also thinking about the future of the auto industry, prospects for pro-worker labor reform proposals in Congress, and the prospect of a Green New Deal for manufacturing. 
I don't know if a lot of people are employed by GM in, in your community, but is there a sense that it's affecting the broader community? Well, I'm, uh, I'm originally from Flint, Michigan, and uh, I currently live just about two miles north of Flint, Michigan. Um, so Flint is a, you know, a big GM town, a big UAW town, always has been, although it's shrunk uh, significantly since the, the old days, but, uh, it's still got a really strong institutional memory of, you know, it's a labor heritage, what solidarity means. And I think most of the people in the community are very supportive because, you know, they've seen historically when the UAW has one strikes, that means, more money for everybody and their families and the whole community, you know, workers get a share of the fruits of their labor. And, uh, I think solidarity is running pretty high right now. Um, you know, people honking their horns. I mean, other than that kind of initial hiccup, uh, that I mentioned with uh, people crossing the picket line, which was, you know, I just couldn't believe it quite honestly, but, uh, but now things are kind of in the high gear. And I think people are just kind of waiting for, for the official nod from the UAW leadership. When you say you're waiting for the official nod from the UAW leadership, how long do you think this might last? And I guess, what do you hope will be the ultimate outcome? Uh, I mean, for me, the biggest number one, most fundamental issue that we're facing is the multiple tiers, the divisions in the workplace, as far as temporary employees, uh, third-party employees taking jobs that used to be done by traditional UAW members. Uh, it's it's really discouraging to see so much division in the ranks of a union whose entire power is predicated based on unity. It's in the very word, you know, union. Just think about it. Look at the symbol of the UAW, everyone holding hands in a circle, being equal. That's what we're supposed to be all about, right? But ever since the 2007 two-tier contract, that instituted that divide and conquer strategy. It's just been slowly, slowly we've been hurting, you know, and, and it's just, it's against the fun. It's not only good for our pocketbooks, right? But it's good for morale. It's good for the spirit of the labor movement, the spirit of solidarity to bring everyone together as one. So there's no more animosity, no more tension, and we can all move forward fighting for a better contract, for, not only for ourselves, but for everybody in the country and everybody in the world, right? The larger the bargaining unit a worker has, the more power they have, right? And so if we can expand worker solidarity globally in the same way that the companies are global and they're traded on the stock market globally and all these different types of things, right? If the labor movement can move beyond its narrow nationalistic thinking, and we can support, for example, our brothers and sisters in Oshawa, Canada, uh, their plants being closed down, and I feel a lot of sympathy with them, you know, because quite frankly, you know, living uh, in Flint most of my life, I've seen the hardship that plant closures can cause and the, the mental breakdowns people have and the drug addiction, I and mean, it destroys whole families. Um, and so I want to express my solidarity with my brothers and sisters in Oshawa. We've been getting great support from uh, Union General Motors employees in Brazil. You know, they've sent up strong uh, statements of support and solidarity with us here in the United States. And I, I find that really inspirational and I hope it can be the, the seed of something larger growing to where we can fight on a global level instead of just thinking about our nationalistic kind of narrow interests. Because if we keep doing that, we're just going to get whipsawed with one another for all eternity. And that's not good for anyone but the capitalist class and the CEOs of these companies. Speaking of global solidarity, I mean, 
when you sort of have big corporations treating workers like, you know, interchangeable cogs in a machine around the globe, seems like it's it's challenging, right, to think about your job in solidarity with workers around the world, right? When jobs are being pushed from one country to to another country with, you know, lower labor standards. And that's sort of the game that, that auto manufacturers and various other industries have been playing for the last 30, 40 years, right? Right. And the division is just getting deeper, right? So it used to be we were just divided nationalistically, but within the UAW, we were all the same. And we had, you know, more effective strikes that way. You know, there was more solid, a culture of solidarity. Um, but now, even within the, the UAW itself, you know, you don't have it, right? So we've been backsliding for a long time, you know, and the excuse was, okay, well, General Motors is bankrupt. Okay, well, that's all well and good. Now they've had their, you know, most profitable years in their entire history. And it was all made off of our backs. That was all made off of us taking concessions and pay cuts, right? And so it comes back to like the fundamental question, who controls the capital, who controls the surplus value, who controls the fruits of their labor, right? Because without us, um, you know, like the old union song, Solidarity Forever, without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel could turn. They couldn't run their company without us. They couldn't build their cars without us, right? They owe us, they should be owing us a debt of gratitude for the work and the sacrifices we've made in our community, right? And they talk about, okay, we need we need to pay 15% of our health care. No, okay. We, we don't want to hire in attempts is what they're saying. Okay, so you want austerity from us? But what about you? You know, what about management? What about the company? Why are they making $22 million a year? You know, that doesn't send a good signal. That's not a good leader, right? If you really cared about people, you'd be the first person to lead by example and take a pay cut. And so I want to challenge any of these corporate executives, come work on the line on a, in general assembly, in a factory, you know, putting in plastic parts for 12 hours a day, like you make some of us do, right? Temporary workers who don't have any rights. Come do their job. Be scared to make a complaint like they are. Be scared to make a committee call like they are. Make $15 an hour like they do. Getting arthritis, getting crippled for the rest of your life. Worried about your job because at any moment you could be fired, okay? Come do that, making 15 bucks an hour for a couple of years to see how you feel. But until you can do that, you don't have any kind of credibility to say that we should be, you know, taking pay cuts and paying more of our insurance costs. You know what I mean? You take a pay cut. You live in poverty. The last strike was over a decade ago. Were you there for that? No, I was hired in right after the 2007 agreement that brought in two-tier. Uh, 2007, you know, there was a quick two-day strike. It did not last. We didn't get what we wanted. Um, unfortunately, the membership voted it in. Uh, I never agreed with it. Um, I was hired in immediately after, you know, making 14 bucks an hour. And, uh, you know, I went through that. I was that guy in the line, you know, who's got arthritis you know what I mean? Who has injuries that don't go away, you know? And, uh, you know, I sympathize with my temporary brothers and sisters who are on the line now doing the same thing. And I want to express my solidarity with them as well. You and I'm sure many other workers at the time disagreed with the two-tier system. Do you think the union erred in allowing that concession to go forward? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. That was like the biggest mistake. That was, it was a shame. It was a disgrace. 
You know, I mean, it goes against the fundamental principles of what a union is supposed to be. It's all about equality, working class solidarity, and that's not it. It institute a, instituted a divide and conquer strategy. And I've always disagreed with it vocally because it's an anti-union. It's against the, the, the very morals and ethics that make a union what it is. In this round of contract negotiations, I mean, we're sort of in a similar situation, and um, I think the union has been calling for changes to the two-tier system. Do you trust the union leadership to follow through on those promises and drive a hard bargain? I mean, it seems like the pressure is on with the strike. Yeah, well, I want to say I I trust the membership to make the right decision. You know, I think the membership will look at the contract, realizing what the CEO makes, realizing how much money General Motors has been making, right? And they'll see that and they'll realize that they want the true fruits of their labor, what they are worth. All of this capital, all these billions came from our hands, right? We want our share of that. We made that wealth. We made that capital. And I trust the members when they see a bad contract, they will vote it down and we will stay out until General Motors shares in the wealth that we have created. As far as the leadership, I think that they're very aware of the members being upset the members, uh, you know, seeing the corruption scandals in the news, right? And the members are going to be watching them with a microscope. So don't bring a bad contract to us. You know, we want our share, right? We want the fruits of our labor, just like every worker should have the true fruits of their labor. Every time there's a big strike, there's, um, you know, various politicians, especially presidential candidates, usually, you know, issue some kind of statement. They tweet something saying, <laughs> expressing their solidarity, uh, you know, as a, as a political issue. I mean, do you think that any politician out there really has any leverage or is there some way that you'd like to see Washington respond in a way that helps workers? I mean, I think the last time auto workers really interacted that much with the federal government was uh, the initial auto bailout, right? And that had decidedly mixed results for workers. <laughs> what mm. what kind of action would you like to see from politicians this time around? Or do you think it's all just kind of lip service? <laughs> um, well, I think there's a lot of really, really good possibilities out there, right? And, and I, uh, I don't know the exact name of the bills. Uh, Bernie Sanders has a bill out that's talking about sector-wide bargaining instead of using like the traditional pattern bargaining where we just focus on one company and pattern the other two uh, uh, big three auto companies off of that, right? Instead of going at one company at a time, you know, we can focus on the entire sector. So we can make a sector-wide union. So if we're going to go into negotiations, we're going with an entire organized workforce, right? We're talking about the parts suppliers, the people who make the racks that hold the parts, the people that work in the trucking industry that deliver all the parts, and the workers on the assembly line uh, who are in the factory that are delivering parts, assembling parts, and sending trucks you know, out the door. Um, everyone coming together and saying, as an industry, we are demanding the fruits of our labor. And that's how we can get real power. I believe... Uh, Bernie was just kind of mimicking a bill that was uh, proposed like back in the 30s during the early days when, you know, the CIO, you know, was first birthed. And, uh, you know, I think those ideas, ideas like the economic bill of rights, you know, where everyone has a right to a decent paying job because there's so much work to be done around the country. Right. Our roads and our bridges and our schools. I mean, I live in Flint, Michigan. 
we have Flint Central right downtown. It's like the most beautiful brick, uh, you know, school. It used to be a high school in the middle of the city. And, you know, it's totally abandoned now, right? There's so much work that could be done where we could use these, you know, things as, you know, public spaces for worker-owned cooperatives or, you know, incubators for new green businesses to, you know, make Flint and Detroit the engine of a Green New Deal, right? These are all things that could happen if we had good public policy and stopped spending our money on an, on eternal war, right? But it's a matter of getting our priorities straight and understanding that the government is supposed to be here to help working class people, you know, everybody, not just the rich, which is what they're currently doing. Um, you mentioned the Green New Deal and um, and Sanders's agenda, and um, it's often thought that you know unions might be at odds with very strict environmental standards, and um, thinking that you know things like the auto industry will sort of never come around to uh, you know embracing any kind of green agenda. But at the same time, we have the auto industry just you know changing under our feet um, simply because of market forces, right? I mean, even you know big auto is thinking about. Uh, a future where there will be fewer cars sold, right? Or, you know, where people have to transition to electric vehicles. Do you think that either the industry or your union is prepared to make that kind of transition or is willing to make that kind of transition um, to move towards like a more sustainable future for manufacturing? Well, one thing I know for a fact is General Motors is getting ready. General Motors has already got their cuts planned and their austerity and their temporary quotas. They all have that organized and we need to get that organized as well as a class and understand that if we got together behind an idea like the Green New Deal, we would be able to have universal employment for everyone, right? Where everyone had a good paying unionized job to where we had good benefits and we could rely on our employer on these whether they're worker-owned uh, collectives or wh whatever they might be, we can rely on that for job security. Because right now, like, the approach that I come to the Green New Deal with is seeing my community in Flint destroyed. My entire life, seeing my community decimated and families just falling apart because of the industrial disinvestment of General Motors. And so the Green New Deal is an opportunity to take these abandoned plants and these brownfields and whatever they might be and say, hey, General Motors, all this time you have been taking advantage of our community, leaving us out to dry, destroying our communities. You're going to clean up these properties, make them environmentally safe and give them back to the community so we can use these facilities. We have a massive capacity. We were the arsenal of democracy to fight fascism. We can do that here in Flint, Michigan, in Saginaw, in Pontiac, in Detroit, right? We can make this happen, but we have to have the political will, right? And I, is the labor movement currently at odds? Yes. But do they have to be? Absolutely not. A lot of people don't realize General Motors used to make buses. Why can't we make buses again? You know, if we were going to try to transform our, you know, our transportation system and turn it into something that was sustainable, we could do that. We have the technology. It's already being done all over the world. You know, there's really no excuse. And these could all be good paying union jobs. I mean, you know what? If I have a good paying union job, I don't care if I'm building wind turbines, solar panels, electric buses, or what have you. I'll build it if it's a, if it's a job that treats me right 
and gives me a sense of dignity and, you know, a, a living wage. And, and from my perspective, doing something like that would be even better because, you know, you're contributing positively to humanity's future, you know, which is a way to reconnect with yourself instead of just having uh, to do meaningless drudgery all day. Right. And so it's a, it's a way to recontextualize how we, we approach work as well. And that was Sean Crawford, a GM worker out on strike. Hello again from London, where I am about to attend the Labor Party Conference and the World Transformed Conference. We are also bringing you another interview from the UK this week. I sat down with Jason Moyer-Lee of the Independent Workers of Great Britain Union, a new union that brings together outsourced, gig economy, and other unorganizable workers to build power. Jason and I talked about their founding, their position in an often hidebound trade union movement, how they've managed to win for misclassified workers, and much more. Tell us about the beginnings of IWGB. Right. Well, I actually wasn't part of the group that founded it, Mm -hmm. um, but it was founded by a group of mainly Latin American janitors Mm -hmm. uh, who'd been involved originally with the Unite uh, Union Justice for Cleaners campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for context, Unite's the biggest trade union in the UK, and the Justice for Cleaners campaign was modeled on and heavily supported by the SEIU, Justice for Janitors stuff. Um, So these guys have been involved with that. Uh, They eventually left, went to the IWW, the Wobblies, uh, or participated in the Cleaners Branch, and then uh, left to form the IWGB in August of 2012. Um, So around the same time, I had been organizing uh, with outsourced workers at the University of London with Unison, which is the second biggest union in the UK. It's the main public sector union. Um, and we had an absolutely abysmal experience with Unison in terms of not backing the campaign, not responding to the needs of the workers, um, and uh, ultimately invalidating uh, local elections that we're sure we won. So on that basis, we left en masse from the University of London and formed the second branch or section of the IWGB about eight months after it was formed. And then it sort of took off from there. We started bringing in other sectors and groups of workers. In terms of what went into forming those branches and sort of putting together an independent union, just tell us a little bit more about this because this is, you know, it's fairly rare for us to be able to talk about like what does it mean to put to start your new union? Yeah, well, I wouldn't recommend it for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. It's a hell of a lot of work. Yeah. Um, But, you know, the history of the IWGB is it really sort of grew organically. Um, We, you know, when when I joined as part of the University of London, uh, the union was very, very small, only a couple hundred, mainly Latin American janitors, just in London. There wasn't really much of anything in the way of structure. Um, So there weren't regular uh, committee meetings with sort of... Right. Uh, people had been elected to the committee. It was all very new and beginning, and it was yeah. finding its way. Uh, because uh, we had had such a bad experience in unison, in particular with sort of outside uh, regional officials and bureaucrats yeah. kind of dictating to the local group yeah. how things had to be done, we were very keen not to have that experience yeah. in the IWGB. So we set up uh, what, by UK standards, was an extremely autonomous uh, branch. Uh, so the University of London section of the union kept 
75% of the membership dues that it brought in mm-hmm. uh, and could basically take all of its yeah. uh, own decisions on campaigning and whatnot, which is very, very unusual in the UK context. Yeah. So that was kind of the basis. And then that, as we grew and we brought on new groups of workers like the bike messengers mm-hmm. uh, and security guards and Uber drivers, all, that University of London model was the model that we used. So It's changed a bit as we've grown, but even today, I think one thing that sets the IWGB apart from many of the other trade unions is this very autonomous branch structure. So even today, branches keep uh, a very large proportion of the money that they bring in uh, and are mostly responsible for the campaigns and whatnot that they run. So talk a little bit more about the, the outsourced workers at the University of London. So when I got involved, I was a student at the University of London. Um, and the University of London is an enormous university, right? But it has a federal structure. So there are different colleges like the London School of Economics, which mm-hmm. people will be familiar with, which are essentially run as autonomous universities within the structure. But the, the federal university has a, what they call a central university. So it has the major library. It has the student halls of residence where people at the different colleges can go. Yeah. And this unit is run as its own unit, and they outsource. So when I came on board, they outsourced with a facilities management company, uh, which did like cleaning, security, maintenance, and then they had a catering company, Aramark, which will be well oh, known yeah. in the States. Oh, yeah, Aramark. Um, all about them. All about them. <laughs> and the facilities management company actually is Balfour BD, which would be well known as well. Um, and the outsourced workers, predominantly migrants, predominantly people of color, right. uh, were not earning the living wage. They were earning just above the minimum wage, most of them. And they had the bare minimum for terms and conditions, like holidays, sick pay, and pensions. So the first thing we did within Unison, uh, well, first of all, we did English classes, which were very yeah. popular with the Latin American janitors in particular. And we launched a living wage campaign, which we won. We also uh, did a wildcat strike, um, which Unison was not too happy about, but which was extremely effective and won back 6,000 pounds of wages uh, within three days of the strike. Um, after the living wage, we wanted to go on and get equality of terms and conditions and sick pay, holidays, and pensions with the direct employees of the university who had a you know, public sector, very uh, nice terms and conditions. That's a campaign Unison wasn't too supportive of uh, and then actively tried to stop. Um, but we eventually won uh, on the back of industrial action and a campaign that lasted over a year, a major improvement in sick pay, holidays, and pensions. And now we're campaigning uh, to end outsourcing at the university altogether. Mm-hmm. We've started winning that. So about 10% of the outsourced workers have already been brought back in-house. The first time the outsourcing has gone in that direction for many, many years. Yeah. And we're still campaigning to finish it. So, yeah, you're, you're, most of this started out with migrant workers um, with, in various ways, people who have been considered unorganizable. Um, I want to get to labor law in a minute, but... I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of who is and who is not organizable, right? And the way that this move from these outsourced cleaning workers made it sort of maybe more natural than you would think to move into like Uber drivers and others who are not also considered regular employees in a different way. Yeah, so I, I think we in the IWGB really kind of specialize in what you could broadly term as atypical right. workers. Um, so we have very few members, we have some, but very few, who are 
British, university educated, work nine to five uh, in one physical location. Very few people fit that description. And that description is sort of much more common with the bigger trade unions. Um, So, and this is what we saw with the problem with Unison. Uh, Unison was much more comfortable organizing the direct employees at the university. Their Mm. organizing model fit that mold. Um, We uh, were dealing with lots of cleaners, for example, who would work in early morning shift. You had to get there early to talk to them. They didn't speak English. You need to speak Spanish to to engage with them. Uh, They had, you know, three cleaning jobs in different locations. They weren't just based in one place. You had to be able to offer something that would accommodate that. Um, And the issues that they wanted to deal with were very different from the issues that the direct employees were discussing. And we had to, you know, provide something to address those issues and work with them to address those issues. So, you know, I don't believe in this idea of certain sectors being unorganizable because we're organizing all the sectors people say are unorganizable. It's about having a model uh, uh, and structure that, caters to these people and what they want to change, a model that's democratic and allows these members to determine what it is they want to campaign on, and a union in terms of the services that we provide, like legal uh, representation and whatnot, that is able to address the issues they have. And if you do all those things, then anyone's organizable. So the question of of migrant workers, it is, of course, interesting to me that, like, despite you not being on a border with Mexico, you still find that a lot of the cleaning workers are the same nationality as the cleaning workers might be in the U.S. And so I just had like a little bit of question about um, the migrants who make up these particular workforces that you started with, um, how they end up here, what there's, what the sort of um, legal status you're dealing with mm-hmm. for them is under British immigration law. Yeah, so that's, that's a really interesting question and a, and a timely one. So yeah. the, the Latin American yeah, for sure. uh, janitors that, right. that we represent, I would say the, the overwhelming majority... Mm-hmm. Um, have Spanish passports. Yeah. So they're here as EU citizens, mm-hmm. right? right? So there's big wave of immigration from, in particular, Ecuador and Colombia uh-huh. around the uh, early 2000s, late 90s. You know, yeah. the dollarization uh, issue yeah. in Ecuador and, uh, right. and what was going on in Colombia as well. Um, so there's a huge wave of immigration to Spain. Yeah. Um, lots of people, you know, because of the language and, and everything, were able to sort of do okay in Spain Uh, and then with the financial crisis Mm. uh, and the economic crisis a lot of those people who in the meantime had acquired Spanish citizenship started coming to London Um, and so now you know it's a very big Latin American community uh, in London um, and almost all of uh, the Latin American uh, members that we have that that I've engaged with have Spanish passports or here's EU citizens mm-hmm. and are very concerned about the yeah, immigration climate uh, because of Brexit. As things have sort of heightened and then lessened and then heightened again over the last few years, I mean, what has their experience been of, of this? I feel like, you know, a lot of, we tend to hear about like Islamophobic racist violence here, but, you know, are they also facing this kind of, you know, do they feel the tensions when things are explosive? Yeah, look, I mean, there's definitely been an, an uptick in sort of xenophobia with all the Brexit stuff that, that's going on. And, you know, we've seen cases where, you know, in the workplace um, where there's more kind of comments and tied into Brexit and, and that type of thing. So we've seen, we've seen that in the workplace, you know, with this Islamophobia as well. Um, it, we have the, the driver's branch is, is overwhelmingly uh, Muslim mm-hmm. members. Um, so it's, you know, we're in a nasty climate. Right now, it doesn't help having 
Boris Johnson is prime minister and all the, the hopefully Brexit. Hopefully not for long. Yeah, hopefully not for long. All the Brexit stuff, which yeah. had, you know, pretty openly xenophobic undertones to it. Yeah. Um, it's not a good climate. Yeah. Um, but it's important, I think, that trade unions take a strong stand on these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, there's different views in the labor movement in the UK around immigration and around Brexit. Yeah. Um, so we're pretty... Uh, vociferously uh, uh, in favor of not leaving the EU yeah. <laughs> and pro-migrant. Uh, it's important that we say those things loudly. Yeah, and, and specifically to have a an analysis about the EU that includes the views of low-wage workers and not just people who want to go on vacation in Spain. Well, absolutely. I mean, look, we the Remain camp has <laughs> gotten a bad name, I think because of some of the issues that yeah. you've just mentioned yeah. you know there's there's lots of different reasons for being yeah. in favor of remain right. um we're not too concerned about mediterranean holidays um but the the, the reasons that were very much in favor yeah. uh, uh, of remain and have been uh or one the immigration right, yeah. um you know the the once we leave the eu there yeah. will be an impact on freedom yeah, of movement and immigration yeah. There's just there's no world in which we leave the EU and that situation doesn't get worse. Uh, Another key reason why we're uh, against Brexit is the EU law uh, impact on employment law. So a lot of the employment rights in the UK have an EU law origin. Um, Some of these rights wouldn't exist if it wasn't for EU law. So, for example, the right to paid vacation days. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't exist oh, in the UK. Hey, vacation. Isn't yeah. that nice? Uh, so that didn't exist in the UK before yeah. the EU uh, yeah. introduced it. The yeah. UK tried to fight its introduction. Uh-huh. In fact, they took the EU uh, to court to try and prevent its introduction. They lost that, thankfully. Uh, and that now exists because of that. And then you have an EU court, which you know, is, is certainly not, you know, socialist or super pro-work or whatever, but it's more pro-worker than the UK courts for the yeah. most part. Yeah. And, you know, some of the Tories who are pro-Brexit have been very open about the fact that one of yeah. the reasons they one, want to leave yeah. the EU is because uh, they can tear this legislation to shreds, which they can't do while mm-hmm. we're in the EU. So that, that's another very important reason why we're, we see Brexit yeah. as a threat to workers' rights. Yeah, it's interesting to me because the, the sort of fight, and this is similar to the conversations that some people have in the US, which is that, like, you to speak to the working class, you have to sort of take um, the arguments for Brexit as if they are all being made by people who are, um, you know, left behind working class people when that's not actually demographically true. And the positions and the conditions of working class people who might be migrant cleaners working at the University of London, for instance, or Uber drivers who are getting, you know, everybody around London um, are not sort of spoken of as being the working class in the same way. Yeah, it's important to remember that working class and white are not interchangeable terms. <laughs> yeah. So this seems like a good place to talk about um, IWGB's relationship to the rest of the trade union movement and to the Labour Party and to all of these sort of swirling political forces right now. Uh, Look, uh, be honest about this. We have a, 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 a interesting relationship with the rest of the Labour movement. Um, obviously, as I mentioned before, we had a very bad experience with Unison. And in fact, that experience with Unison is, even to this day, a large part of what drives yeah. the IWGB and how we function and what type of union we want to be. Yeah. Uh, and we've had you know, different sections of our membership have had uh, similar experiences with other unions. Um, 
But that's not to say that we have bad relations with unions across the board. Yeah. You know, there are many local branches of Unison and other big unions that we work very well with. For example, University of London, there are mm-hmm. local university branches yeah. of Unison that are very supportive of what we're doing and, and we're supportive of them. Um, there's another union called United Voices of the World, which is probably the I went to the football game on uh, Oh, Saturday. excellent. So, yes, which we won. <laughs> <laughs> probably because I wasn't there. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. I think what I handed a handy victory to UVW. Okay. Uh, but UVW is very similar yeah. uh, to us in terms of who they represent, in mm-hmm. terms of their style of campaigning. Uh, and we work really, really well with them. Um, there's, you know, the TSSA unions and mm-hmm. transport. Um and they're very pro-Remain as well. So we've worked with them on that yeah. issue. Um, we're not in the, the Trade Unions Congress, which is sort of the equivalent of the AFL-CIO. Um, so I think, you know, we, we're different to, in how we function uh, to a lot of the unions. We work well with a lot of the unions and there's some tension with others. The one thing I would say, you know, putting aside our relationship, which is about the labor movement as a whole, um, is I think unfortunately there's not nearly enough good stuff happening, yeah. and there, there is some exciting stuff happening with the bigger unions and the, you know, sort of the official unions and whatnot. Um, so we saw uh, strikes by Unite the Union over tips at TGI Fridays. Uh, we had the McDonald's campaign with the Bakers Union. There was the Ritzy Cinema campaign with Beck too. So there is good stuff happening, but just in my opinion, not nearly enough of it. So, in terms of the politics of the moment, considering we're we're talking right after Boris Johnson has announced he's proroguing Parliament to try to force through a No Deal Brexit. Um, so, what is your relationship with like the Labour Party or other you know forces of the sort of broad socialist pro Labour left in the UK? Yeah, so in the UK, I think this probably isn't the case in the States, but in the UK, uh, many of the big unions are affiliated to the Labour Party. Right, yeah. In fact, the Labour Party was founded by trade unions. Right. Um, so we're not affiliated to the Labour Party. Yeah. Um, so we don't have uh, you know any sort of decision-making power. We don't vote at Labour Party conference. Right. Um, so we're, we're independent in that sense politically. Um, we work with a sort of broad coalition of groups and trade unions and politicians. Uh, so we work very well with yeah. with the Corbynistas. You know, John McDonald's shadow chancellor has been very, very supportive yeah. of IWGB. Has been since he was a Labour backbencher before he was in the Labour leadership. Um, but we also work well with people from other sections of the Labour Party. Um, and people from other parties. The Green Party's been very supportive, worked very well with John Bartley, who's the co-leader of the Green Party. Um, so, you know, we believe in, it's in the interest of our members that we work with a broad coalition uh, of politicians and yeah. groups, what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, so I want to ask you about the different branches, but I think it might be useful to sort of, for our U.S. listeners who don't know some of the differences between the law in the U.K. for how you join a union, who can join a union, which workers are still not technically counted as employees, um, and how all that works. So can I just ask you to give us a little rundown on some of that stuff before we get into more of the details? Sure. So maybe we'll do is a really, really quick crash course on yes. collective bargaining exactly. and employment status. Yes, um, there we go. So in terms of the collective bargaining, right. the best way to explain it is to conceive of the entire UK as a right-to-work state. Right. Right? So the, the it's illegal to have closed shops yeah. in the UK. Um, and... 
we can't if we get a collective bargaining deal, we can't charge non-members, okay. right? So it, that makes uh, collective bargaining and, and functioning quite a challenge in many ways. Yeah. Um, so the way it works is sort of anyone can join the union, sign up, yeah. pay dues, um, and you know putting that bit aside, the collective bargaining laws are quite similar in the sense that mm. it's. It's a model that's based on the workplace rather than sectoral, yeah. uh, unlike lots of continental Europe. Um, so the way you would go about trying to get a collective bargaining deal is you recruit uh, the, the workers in a workplace. You would need to have 10% of the workers in the workplace sign up as members of the union. Uh, and you need to be able, if you're trying to achieve collective bargaining through the courts, you would need to be able to demonstrate that at least 50% of the workers at a workplace support the union being recognized for collective bargaining. Uh, even if they're not members, you can still try and demonstrate yeah. that at least 50% support. Um, some unions, and this is one of the critiques we have of some of the big unions, some unions treat a collective bargaining deal as the, the, the end all. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we don't. We have one official collective bargaining arrangement <laughs> in the entire country, but we've won stuff all over the place. Right. Um, so you don't need to have a collective bargaining deal to win uh, improvements. You can still campaign and win. And the, the other difference I would say with the states is there's not as much of this concept of, oh, no, you have a union contract, you know, in the yeah, states. So right, you have a union yeah. contract, you're much better. So the, often the difference uh, in terms and conditions, because the state provides much more here than in right. uh, the states, right. isn't right. as we, we big. We joke a lot when talking to people, and they're like, oh, you have a contract. I was like, what's that? Right. So that, that concept doesn't really, you yeah. know, exist. What, what would exist is... You know, you have better terms and conditions because, you know, they were negotiated through the collective bargaining mm -hmm. deal. But what, the experience we've often had is we campaign for something, um, then because we exert so much pressure, the company either announces an improvement mm -hmm. or they get in, you know, Unison who has no members in that workplace and then announces, uh, you know, Unison negotiated it. So all that, essentially, we've won a number of things without actually having collective bargaining deals. Yeah. Unemployment yeah. status. Yes. Um, so in the UK, effectively, there's three main categories you can be. You can be an employee, a what's called a LIMB worker, or an independent contractor. Right. Right? So it, it, often people in the States will say, oh, you know, in the States you have two categories, employee and independent contractor. Right. In the UK, you have three. Yeah. That's rather misleading because in the States, you have so many different definitions of employee right. depending on the legislation. You know, the NLRA definition of an employee is very different right. from the California state wage law definition of an employee. Right. So actually in the States, you have many, many more categories than you do in the UK. The yeah. UK employment law is, is pretty unified. Yeah. Um, so, for example, the UK definition of employee is the is very narrow. It's analogous to the NRA definition, common law definition of an employee. Mm -hmm. The UK definition of a worker is wider, so that encompasses more people. All of our test case litigation in the so-called gig economy mm -hmm. is usually around worker status. Yeah. They're entitled to most, but not all, of the employment rights that employees have. Yeah. But it's that the worker definition still wouldn't be as wide, for example, mm -hmm. when covers many people as the California wage law definition in Dynamax. Yeah. And then you still do have independent contractors. And we do have independent contractors. Like Uber and Deliveroo and whatever. Um, well, so yeah. Uber drivers in the UK, as a matter of law, are workers. Uber claims they're independent contractors, okay. but they've lost that argument three times in a row in court. And we're up against them next in the Supreme Court, where I fully expect them to lose again. Yeah. 
So tell us a little bit about those rulings that you've then won in these cases. What, what makes them workers as opposed to independent contractors? Right. So an independent contractor, and I, I think this for the most part would be uh, the same in the States, is, yeah. is someone who's in business on their own account. Right. You know, they're effectively a micro-entrepreneur. Right. Um, and in the so-called gig economy, with all these courier companies and private hire companies, that's what the companies say. Yeah. Um, a worker in the UK, is it falls within the self-employed uh-huh. category. Um, so they tend to work with flexibility. Nice. They do their own taxes. But they're a self-employed person who carries out the work as part of someone else's business. So right. they're sort of integrated into another operation. Uh, and that's so clearly the case with Uber drivers right. or with couriers. So we've taken out a number of these cases right. uh, in the UK, with the exception of Deliveroo, mm-hmm. the one case we've lost on a technicality in my view. Okay. We've won every single other case that we've done yeah. over employment status. And what that really goes to show in the UK context is that there's no problem around a lack of clarity in the law. There's no problem around confusion. Right. There's right. a problem around enforcement. Right. Because what's been happening is if every single company has a similar model loses, you know, that clearly demonstrates that they're simply breaking the law. And the reason they can do that is because in the UK, there's virtually no government enforcement of employment law. There's very, very few areas of employment law that are enforced at all, and those areas are poorly enforced. So on that front, let's start out then by talking about the Uber drivers, because we've just been talking about them winning these cases. But um, tell us a little bit about the Uber driver branch, how that got started, um, how many members. I went to um, some of the demonstrations when I was here in February and actually had James on the podcast briefly to talk about it. But um, yeah, so tell us a little bit more about how the Uber drivers are doing. Right. So the the drivers, we actually represent more than just Uber. So the mm-hmm. right. private, in the, in the UK, the term is private hire drivers. Yeah. So they work for... Uh, other companies as well. Um, they originally started as an association called United Private Hired Drivers. So mm-hmm. technically, it wasn't a union, but they're sort of doing all the things that a union does. Yeah. They're campaigning. They were sort of helping drivers individually. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'd start out like that, but had basically come to a point where they they wanted to be part of a union. Yeah. Um, the James and Yasin, who are the head uh, people, they're the founders. Yeah. Uh, they were members of GMB, but they had some experience that was sort of similar to what I had with Unison. So yeah. GMB really wasn't the right place um, yeah. for, for that to happen. So they came to the IWGB and they uh, decided to form a branch of the IWGB. Yeah. Um, so that happened, I think it's been a couple of years now. Yeah. So we have drivers all over the country. Uh, London's the biggest right. base. Yeah. And, and we really have two issues that we're dealing with with the driver section. One is the companies. So like employment status, employment rights, minimum wage, yeah. big one. Uh, and that's where we have the litigation against Uber. We've had campaigns and strikes against Uber and Addison Lee. So uh, in the UK, Lyft doesn't exist, but Addison Lee would be the next biggest after yeah. Uber. So we've had strikes against them. And the other issue that we have to deal with with the drivers is uh, the regulators. Right. So private hire is, is highly regulated in the UK, unlike in the States. Um, and it, we have common issues across the board. So we're trying to get sort of cap in numbers because the business model tends to lend itself to exploitation if right. we don't have control of the numbers. So what New York City has done, for example, is something we're following very closely. Yeah. Um, and in the London context, yeah. uh, we've been in battle with uh, the mayor, yeah. 
Uh, most recently just brought a, a legal case against him. Uh, and in the London context, one of the issues we have is that there's a divide in the trades between the black cabs, so these are like the iconic London mm -hmm, taxis that you see in the movies and whatnot, yeah. and the private hire. Yeah. Um, and the, the black cabs, there's only 20, 23,000 black cabs. They're 88% white British. Yeah. Private hire, there's over 100,000, yeah. and 94% from black, Asian, and minority ethnic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And the most recent, there's a lot of sort of unfair regulation, but the most recent thing that's come to a head uh, is congestion pricing, right. which uh, already existed for private vehicle owners, but yeah. not for black cabs or private hire drivers. Mm -hmm. And the mayor, Sadiq Khan, has chosen to charge the private hire drivers, the Uber drivers, but not the black cabs. Right? So because of the, the major uh, difference in uh, ethnicity and uh, uh, whatnot between the groups, we brought a discrimination challenge. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, um, we've lost that at the first stage, but we're now seeking to go to the Court of Appeal in that case. It follows, since we were talking about Deliveroo being the one challenge that you had on the legal front, but um, you've got bicycle couriers on a number of different places, not just Deliveroo, right? Right. So, yeah, tell us about the, the courier organizing. Yeah, so uh, the... Curs is one of the first groups that we mm -hmm. that we started organizing, and uh, a group of uh, bike messengers who work on bicycles mm -hmm. uh, approached us because they saw some of the campaigning we were doing with the janitors at the University of London, and yeah. uh, and, and they liked what we were doing there. Yeah. And they said, "Look, we don't have any employment rights because we're all misclassified as independent contractors, right. and many of us haven't had a pay rise in years, and yeah. wages have just stagnated. So we want to unionize and we want to campaign." So we started uh, representing them, and we began by launching a campaign against City Sprint, which is uh, the, traditionally the biggest same-day delivery company. Yeah. And the campaign was on behalf of bicycle couriers, and we're basically trying to get the living wage. Right. And that took a while because you know we'd never done anything in the courier sector before. We had to establish ourselves as a campaigning organization there. But we eventually won about a 17% uh, salary increase mm -hmm. for City Sprint bicycle couriers. After that, we went to one of the other companies and said, look, give us a pay rise. We're going to do to you what we did to them. Uh, so we eventually took a little bit of campaigning, but not that much. But we eventually got a, a pretty big pay rise there. Yeah. Went to a third company, didn't even have to launch the campaign. So we got a series of pay rises for bicycle couriers. And then the, the food delivery couriers, which tend to be a different group, right, yeah. started joining. So we had some sort of uh, wildcat strikes with Deliveroo uh, a while back. We've had the litigation against Deliveroo, which is, that's, as I mentioned before, we've lost that, but that's, we have a couple cases against Deliveroo now, which are making their way through the courts. Right. Uh, and we're about to launch a very exciting project in conjunction with the ITF. Yeah. Uh, and we're hiring uh, a couple uh, Deliveroo organizers just to target Deliveroo riders in London. Yeah. So for the first time, we'll have, putting some real resource into this. Yeah. And the ITF is also supporting it. Yeah. Um, and we're very excited about what's going to happen with that. Yeah. There were pretty big strikes around Deliveroo and Uber Eats in the last couple of years, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Deliveroo, these strikes tend to happen very, very impromptu, very spontaneous. Okay. And, you know, they achieve, uh, they get publicity. They sort of focus the public's mind. I think Deliveroo has been under a lot of reputational pressure between the strikes and the litigation that we've done and the crowdfunding we did. Um, what's been more lacking is a sort of sustained and uh, strategic campaign mm -hmm. to actually achieve and, and consolidate some sort of longer-term gains. Mm 
Uh, and that's, that's what we're hoping to really get going in London. One of the ones that is, is really interesting to me and, and relevant to some of the research I do is the foster care workers. Yeah, so just just out of uh, context, because, you know, especially I've had this experience when I go back to the States saying, yeah. oh, well, fo- foster care, what's that? Yeah. Right? So in, in the UK, foster care, uh, foster carers, we call them foster care workers right, yeah. sometimes. So they used to be termed foster parents, which right. we think is a, 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 a misnomer. Yeah. These are people who take care of children and adolescents who have been placed under state control, right. uh, state uh, responsibility, rather, right. control. Um and the majority of looked after children in the UK uh, are in foster care rather than in residential homes, for example. Yeah. And foster carers, most of them are paid yeah. for the work they do. Yeah. They're also given an allowance to cover expenses. Um, the foster carer in most situations doesn't actually have legal authority over the child. The local, the municipal government retains the legal authority. Mm-hmm. Foster carers are highly supervised by someone who works for the municipal government. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they have a written agreement setting out what they do, how they have to do it. Yeah. They have very little decision-making power on a day-to-day basis. So the example that's commonly given is often to get the kid's haircut, they need to get permission for that, right? So these are not situations in which the kid is, you know, sent to the family and yeah. then, you know, we'll just raise yours around. This is not adoption. It's very different from yeah. adoption. That's not to say foster care is not very loving and caring and providing a family setting, but it's a very different context Mm -hmm. to adoption. So foster carers approached us because they saw on the BBC some of the test cases we were doing with the couriers. Mm -hmm. And they said, actually, we feel like we have a lot in common with these people because we're effectively working for the municipal government. We're we're paid. We're told what to do. We don't have jobs elsewhere, a lot of us, Mm -hmm. uh, but we have no employment rights. So we started organizing foster carers. There's been enormous appetite. It's now become the biggest section of the union. Uh, and we only started uh, three years ago. Yeah. And the, the, there's a few main objectives we have there. Uh, one is to get foster carers recognized as workers and having employment rights. Right. And for a bunch of technical reasons I won't go into, yeah. that's more of an uphill battle than the yeah. Uber drivers and the couriers yeah. for sort of legal technical reasons. We've and also won- for just sort of people have a hard time conceptualizing caring for children as work reasons. Yes. Although I think I think in, in, in the UK context with foster care, I think attitudes are moving on yeah. with some of the, the publicity and, and whatnot that we've done. But yes, that, that, especially in the beginning, that, that's always a, a battle to explain yeah. why uh, you know, people need employment rights. Yeah. And, and also how employment rights are in the benefit of, of the looked after children. Yeah. You know, right now, foster care is petrified to speak out yeah. and criticize things that a municipal government might be doing, mm-hmm. uh, which is not the child's interest, because they have no whistleblowing protection, yeah. right? You have foster carers who are burnt out because they have, some of them have very, very challenging situations, yeah. taking care of adolescents with severe behavioral difficulties, yeah. and they can't get a paid break, right? So the, these things actually, you know, we would say and believe it, are, are in the interests of the looked after children because if foster carers are taken care of, they can do a much better job taking care of others. So we're trying to get employment rights. We're also trying to get regulation for the sector because what we have now is a situation in which the municipal governments or the agencies for which foster carers work also function effectively as the regulators. So if there's an allegation against a foster carer that they've been inappropriate with a child or they're not fit to foster for some reason, Mm Uh, it's the local authority that determines whether or not they're fit to be a foster carer. 
there's no independent regulatory body like yeah. there is for doctors and nurses or whatever. Yeah. So we're trying to and and the reason we're we're very keen on that is because we have loads of cases of unfair procedures, sort of kangaroo court style stuff, where the same manager who decides whether to strike a foster care off the roll from the local authority uh, will also decide on the appeal to their own decision. Right? So you have all sorts of this stuff. And, you know, this this is what yeah. happens. It generates, when, when there is no external and independent body that determines yeah. these issues, it generates a culture of impunity and it generates these problems. So that's the other major thing we're trying to deal with. Yeah. So one other one that we've touched on on the podcast before <laughs> is the games workers. Yes. I love games workers. But one of the things that's really interesting to me specifically is the games workers are sort of more um, white collar than a lot of the workers you've organized. So I want to talk about like the sort of value of having them as a branch in this particular union and this building solidarity between these different branches. Yeah. So the, the first thing I say is that there's actually quite a bit of diversity with the games workers in terms of income. I mean, I, when I first approached them, I assumed everyone would be making, you know, big bucks. Yeah. Uh, and there's it's definitely, exactly there's okay. definitely some of that, yeah. but there's also, you know, uh, QA people, quality assurance, interpreters, whatnot, who get, you know, maybe living wage or even below living wage. Yeah. Um, so there's a bit of a range, um, but you know, they, they, they fall into the category of atypical employment right, in yeah. many ways. So they're yeah. kind of a natural, uh, fit with the IWGB. And some of the issues that they are, are, are most important to them, for example, dealing with the problem of excessive overtime, yeah. unpaid overtime, you know, those are basic workers' rights yeah. issues yeah, um, that we care about. They care about, uh, in particular, increasing the diversity uh, mm-hmm. in, in the sector, yeah. preponderance of white men working in the games industry, uh, and they're about trying to sort of get out, uh, get rid of racism and whatnot and increase mm-hmm. diversity. And those. I think are objectives that fit very well with the IWGB yeah, uh, and, and who we are and who we represent. Yeah. Um, so I think they're a good fit. Uh, we're very happy to have them. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there is solidarity as yeah. well for, from the higher income people. I think they, they believe in, in what we're doing. You know, if they earn more, they can pay more into the union. That benefits the cleaners, for example, who yeah. can't pay as much yeah. into the union. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's one of the newest branches uh but it's been it's been growing quite a bit uh, and it's quite exciting yeah i think the the interesting thing of, of sort of having these fairly autonomous branches as you do and then building a culture of solidarity across that um like i said i went to the the football game against uvw the other day um and i'm going to try to come to the party tomorrow night at a whatchamacallit um and um yeah, so I'd, I'd love you to just talk a little bit about sort of building that culture within this union of like you are autonomous branches, you get to make your decisions, you are deciding what is best for the workers in your section, but also how do we then come together and create a, you know, unified force that actually can, you know, bring a lot of leverage to bear. Yeah, so I think sort of creating that unity has been one of the challenges yeah. that comes with having very autonomous branches, right. right? So the upside of the autonomous branches is it gives workers a lot of agency um, and makes them feel, I think, a lot of the time like they really have a stake in what's going on and yeah. can have influence over what they're fighting for in their industry. And I think a lot of the sectors that we represent wouldn't have developed if we didn't have autonomous branches because what you would have is everyone sort of throwing everything into the IWGB pot and then you have the most kind of outspoken and confident people in in each branch rather than a much broader cross-section participating. 
The challenge, of course, is that if we don't try and actively uh, do something about it, it's very easy for people to fall into their own sort of industry or workplace silos. Right. So this is something that's sort of always on our radar. And I think for me personally, the, the most kind of exciting moments uh, of being in the IWGB are those instances where everyone comes together. Yeah. And I think a lot of people share that view. So, you know, one sort of mundane thing, the executive committee, once a month, we have representation from each branch. Every yeah. branch can send two people to the exec. Um, so that's, you know, last night we had a meeting and every branch reports on what they've been doing. And that's just, it's a really exciting uh, environment to hear everyone and telling everyone and, 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 you know, sharing very similar experiences in many ways, despite the very different industries. The parties are another one. So like the AGM, you know, if you look at the social media stuff on the AGM, uh, we had a big party after that. And everyone, uh, annual general meeting. Yeah. And everyone, you know, you had Scottish foster carers learning how to dance from Colombian cleaners in London mm-hmm. and this type of stuff yeah. uh, that I think everyone just really enjoys. And those social moments are also really important. Yeah. And then, of course, on the streets. So we've had a, a few national demonstrations against precarious work, which we've timed around court days and Uber to get the most kind of uh, uh, publicity and coverage of what we're trying uh, the message we're trying to send and that one was 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 really great for that for that same purpose as well you know you had somali uber drivers marching in step with uh white british electricians uh and, and a real sort of mix of people from different backgrounds and sectors and in this type of thing but creating and, and building that solidarity between different sections is something we're always trying to do more of. So to wrap up, you mentioned the staffing up for more delivery organizing um, and the ongoing lawsuit with Uber drivers, but what are some of the other campaigns that are going on right now that people can keep an eye on? We have the case against Uber. We also have the case uh, against the mayor of London, which mm-hmm. we're trying to appeal. So the, the congestion pricing is something we're trying to deal with as well. Um Deliveroo should be kicking off very soon. We have the University of London. Uh, We're still fighting against uh, the outsourcing, trying to end that uh, completely. Uh, We've just had a campaign victory at the doctor's laboratory on behalf of couriers there, so hopefully that won't be kicking off again uh, soon. Uh, We have a campaign for security guards at Goldsmiths, trying to end outsourcing there. We're getting active at the University of Greenwich, so hopefully launching something there soon, and University College London on behalf of outsourced workers. So we've got quite a bit going on. You're busy. Yeah. You're busy. That's great. And that was Jason Moyer-Lee, General Secretary of the IWGB. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. And my pick is Workers and Renters of the World Unite by Marnie Brady. Our jobs do not exist in a vacuum. Our livelihoods are linked to the environment in which they unfold, and they are tied to the physical space that we return to after work. Between these two spaces, home and work, we experience hardship, joy, family bonds, self-realization, and we weave together an identity from how we earn our keep and how we make a home for ourselves. Brady says that we should start linking housing and labor as twin planks of a single platform for social justice. 
And now that politicians are reviving the concept of the New Deal with respect to combating climate change, it's important to remember that the New Deal flourished in part because it looked beyond the issues of unemployment and economic deprivation and sought to build strong, stable communities where children could grow up healthy, where housing was secure, and where corporate landlords did not control our futures. Today, Brady writes, those lessons should be resurrected. Quote, labor, led by workers of frontline communities, must envision a just transition away from gentrification, and that requires affordable, fossil fuel-independent, retrofitted housing and decommodified land. Labor today must be as bold and militant as their rank-and-file predecessors who forged the political will that drove the original New Deal. That also means correcting the injustices of the past, including, quote, slum clearance, state-sanctioned redlining, and the subsidized suburbs that created a system of housing apartheid at the expense of communities of color. A just transition hinges on a marriage of racial, gender, environmental, and economic justice, unquote. Today, our social welfare policies are so retrograde that they actually preclude access to decent housing. You can't afford a basic two-bedroom apartment while earning minimum wage anywhere in the U.S. In other words, Brady argues, quote, the wage floor for a full-time worker effectively denies the right to housing, unquote. Even the Fight for 15, that famous slogan, is proposing a wage level that is simply not a living wage in many cities across the country, if you want to pay rent and cover other needs like food and health care. Housing inequality is exacerbated by Trump's recently enacted tax breaks, which have facilitated Wall Street investment in so-called distressed neighborhoods. At the same time, in some cases, labor's own coffers are being exploited to drive this displacement and gentrification. For example, with teacher pension funds financing private equity, which in turn goes to drive exploitative real estate development. The sale of the famous Stuyvesant Town housing complex here in New York followed the loss of millions of dollars in California pension funds through an over-leveraged real estate portfolio. And a massive sale of the property recently led to just 5,000 out of 11,000 apartments being preserved as rents stabilized. In recent months, there have been several breakthroughs in affordable housing and anti-gentrification battles, including several rent law reforms that help preserve rent control in New York and in the Bay Area, a statewide rent control law in Oregon, and several notable gains in grassroots movements for tenants and housing rights. Union members are also increasingly conscious of how their hard-fought pensions are being exploited to undermine the social fabric of their own neighborhoods. Yet not all unions have championed such a holistic organizing approach. Brady recalls in the recent rent law battles in Albany, SEIU 32BJ, which represents building service workers in New York, saw the real estate industry as, quote, quite literally, the boss. In this fight, the union supported landlords in hopes of worker gains, bypassing the possibility of activating their members to defend their own communities and the larger working class. Pitting decent jobs against decent housing is a false dilemma, unquote. Big business has often destroyed communities by pitting labor's interests against the protection of the public welfare. By contrast, Brady emphasizes the success that unions like Chicago Teachers Union have seen with so-called bargaining for the common good, that is, bringing a broader set of interests to the bargaining table. Using their leverage as workers, they've been able to push demands on a variety of so-called whole worker issues, including fair school funding, affordable housing, environmental justice, and gender equality. Brady points out that increasingly rare union pension funds should be managed in a way that serves the interests of working-class communities in the long run. Quote, public pension funds should shift away from predatory investments and contribute to the long-term financing of massive, environmentally sound social housing preservation and production to help meet the nationwide shortfall. End quote. Imagine if retirement security and housing security and environmental stability were linked together instead of pitted against one another. We all would like to live in a world where it's possible to envision a life beyond work. That not only means a secure nest egg for our autumn years, but also the ability to enjoy a real life today outside of the workplace. A place where it's safe to breathe, 
a place where kids are guaranteed a quality education. When we go to work, we should know that we're working for a better future for our community, and we should be able to look forward to returning home to that community every day. For this week's ARG, I've chosen a piece by friend of the show and multiple ARG recipient Sarah Jones at New York Magazine titled, Yoga Teachers Are Unionizing to Heal the Wellness Industry. Yoga has gone from a relatively obscure practice in the U.S. to a ubiquitous wellness trend in the past few decades, and instructors are expected to radiate an aura of health and mindfulness to their clients. Yet the teachers at one yoga chain, Yoga Works, have decided that their own health and well-being will be best served by becoming union members. 100 teachers from four locations in New York City filed for an NLRB election in September, asking to be represented by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. Sarah writes, quote, Though Yoga Works classifies teachers as employees, which entitles them to certain rights and benefits, a rarity for the industry, many say it's difficult to qualify for the company's health insurance. To do so, teachers have to lead at least 10 classes per week, but for most, that standard is prohibitively onerous. No one interviewed by The Cut currently has insurance through Yoga Works. Quote, you're in the wellness industry, your job is about health, and yet your own health is not supported or guaranteed in any way. End quote. Like so many other workers these days, yoga instructors are expected to do their work out of love, and that often translates to low wages, precarious conditions, and no health insurance. Many of them are classified as independent contractors, but the instructors at Yoga Works are employees, meaning that they can also, in fact, become union members. And while yoga instructors are supposed to do their work for love, yoga is big business for others. Jones noted that Yoga Works is owned by private equity firm Great Hill Partners, and it is not the only yoga chain to be run for big profits. It's an irony that the instructors see clearly. What is to them, spiritual practice has been commodified, and that means that they are also wage laborers, just like the rest of us. Sarah writes, quote, Low pay and professional instability can block anyone who isn't financially comfortable from entering the field, and teachers believe these barriers disproportionately burden women of color. Toya Williford, who teaches part-time for Yoga Works, told New York that she believes teachers are vastly underpaid and undervalued, especially within the Yoga Works structure. She added, I'm an African-American woman, and I have found very few women of color in the industry. End quote. Sarah concludes, quote, Teachers began their organizing drive months before Yoga Works stopped publicly trading, but the company's turmoil only seems to have reinforced their commitment to a union. It's a question of wellness, after all, their own and that of teachers to come. I feel like our effort at Yoga Works to unionize teachers makes it seem like we do matter, like our voices matter, and that the profession needs to have more support, Blake said. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for more on the yoga instructor struggle, organizing in the new economy, and much, much more on the GM strike. Thank you again to Descent for hosting us and to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good every week. Thanks to you for listening, and even more thanks to you if you rated us on iTunes, shared us with your friends, promoted us on Twitter or Facebook, or generally propagandized on our behalf. And an extra special thanks to our belabored sustaining members. Just $5 a month gets you an excellent belabored tote bag, and we also have some fabulous new Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber to the magazine. You can find out more about all of that at descentmagazine.org slash belabored membership or about our new Solidarity subscription program and t-shirts at descentmagazine.org slash solidarity. You can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you're a striking auto worker or a yoga instructor, an Uber driver or foster care worker. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. 
We will be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. 